Okay. Okay. That's... Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us again today um, during this special SACPA session with Dr. Sena Kaspar. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Sienna Kasper has worked in long-term, so sorry, today is Dr. Sienna Kasper and she'll be talking on, will long-term care facilities finally receive appropriate attention? Sienna Kasper has worked in long-term care facilities in both Canada and the US for over 20 years. She is a postdoctoral fellow in a cross appoint appointment at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute at the University Health Network and the University of Victoria. She conducted an interventional study aimed at improving leadership and collaborative decision-making in long-term care settings. Currently, she's an associate professor at the University of Lethbridge in the Faculty of Health Sciences Therapeutic Recreational Program. Thank you very much for being with, it, with us today and we look forward to your talk. Thank you. Um, so I'm just thrilled to be here and, and, and honored to be asked to present to this organization on, on, an, on a topic that I feel is incredibly important um, and, and, and also un unfortunately incredibly timely right now as well. So one of the most devastating aspects of COVID-19 is that eight out of 10 deaths in Canada and also half around the world are of people living in long-term care homes. And this tragedy is prompting governments to release new guidelines to help contain illness and deaths among residents and staff. And a primary focus of this response that we are watching is, is a call for increasing regulations. But we have to ask the, an important question, and that is, will increasing regulations work to actually produce the change that we're looking for and that is vastly needed? And the reason that we need to ask that is because already, prior to COVID-19 happening, the operation of private and public, and let me emphasize, private um, long-term care homes is already one of the most highly regulated areas of healthcare. If you look into the regulatory standards in uh, various provinces, you will find that they have regulations around such things as how wide hallways are, how often baths occur, the timelines for assessments and care planning, um, what the bed rail heights are, the temperature at which meals need to be served, and how much space a person has at their dining table. That is not an exaggeration. There is regulations on how much space each person has at their dining table. And the list goes on. And yet, despite this, these regulations were ineffective in reducing the harm that we are witnessing. And this is serious harm. These are lives that are being lost. And why? Um, and that I believe very fervently, and, and many researchers like myself and other, I probably maybe even family members as well, and other people who have been involved um, in long-term care, um, it's because the regula regulations have repeatedly stopped short of addressing a fundamental issue, and that is the quality of the working lives for those who are in these homes providing the care. So who is providing the care in long-term care homes? Currently, 80% of the care in care homes is provided by care aides. And who are care aides? Um, they are predominantly women, um, many of whom are immigrants or from marginalized racial groups and they are predominantly an unregulated workforce. In other words, there is no clear standard across the country on how much education and training they have um, in order to go into these positions. When we were looking at the quality of work life of care aides, um, we've been researching that, well, some of us have been researching that, and me included, uh, for uh, over a decade. And long before COVID-19 happened, uh, research has demonstrated that CARE-AIDS working life needed to be vastly improved. So some examples, CARE-AIDS account for the highest number of on-the-job in injuries more than any other industry. That includes logging, 
construction, or mining. Also, without full-time hours, with benefits, they work at multiple facilities to make ends meet. Um, one of the things that I found uh, more recently is that um, the industry's response to budgets and budget restrictions was to reduce, and sometimes, in some cases, in some long-term care homes, reduce all full-time um, uh, employment down to um, partial employment or, or, or part-time part employment so that they didn't have to pay benefits. Also, um, we also know that care aides rarely feel appreciated by management for the work that they do. And one study that I conducted in over 41 different long-term care homes, 72% of care aides said they rarely to never felt appreciated um, for, by management for the work that they did. We also know that over, over the course of the last decade, perhaps even longer, care aides have been um, expressing that they are having increased levels of stress due to increased workloads, and that's resulting in, in decreasing job satisfaction. And all of this is as a result of residents who are being admitted and living in these long-term care homes. They are becoming um, more and more complex. Um, their needs are more... Um, more complex as a result of that. So there are most residents who live in long-term care homes have what are called comorbidities, where they have more than one diagnosis. So they have needs that are both related to their cognitive well-being, whether or not they have dementia or are on a dementia journey, and also complex health care needs as well, so related to their physical health and well-being. With no minimum staffing ratios, little control over how they get their work done, and a lack of resources, carries frequently experience moral distress because of the tension between what they want to do for residents and what they actually can do. In a study that I did with Dr. Shannon um, Spensley, um, where we, she first went in and, and evaluated and, and assessed the level of, um, and the, the amount of moral distress that carries experience, we were actually shocked. It's pervasive. Um, in her study, 72% um, of care aides felt more distress because they saw care suffer due to not having enough staff to do the care. 60% expressed experienced moral, moral distress because they were having to rush um, um, when providing care due to lack of time. So it's pervasive. And that those studies occurred before COVID-19. <laughs> Um, which is important to point out. Also, when we look at the quality of work life, um, why why is that so important? Why am so I my um, PhD is from uh, is in interdisciplinary studies, but my focus was organizational behavior, and so I've been looking at quality of work life for carries for quite a while. And the reason I have is because we know that the quality of work life that context is the context of care. So poor working conditions, which are most often indicated by staff turnover and job dissatisfaction, is linked directly to poor quality of care. And in some cases, greater aggression towards residents and other workers. In fact, the quality of their work life may be the, one of the biggest um, predictors of the quality of the care that they can provide. And if we want to look for evidence of this, um, of what we've been observing, uh, we just have to look at what has happened in, in, um, in one facility that was one of the first really gut-wrenching stories of what happened in Dorval, Quebec, where they observed dehydrated and malnourished residents who were left lying in soiled linens and some of them for days. And my assessment of that, as soon as I heard that is, that's not because these are uncaring carries. That's not because these are people who are heartless. That's because they must have been working in such a poor working environment where um, their employer did not respond to their valid fears and concerns about the pandemic. And they felt so powerless and disrespected that the only response they believed they had was in fact to leave. Having said all of that, I think it's also important for us to not forget that the vast majority of care aides continued to carry on throughout this pandemic, working short staffed, fearing for their health and that of their families, and also working with short supplies. The vast majority continued to go into these homes every day, um, given, and that's within that context of that research that I've already shared, where they already felt moral distress, where they already 
felt stretched too thin. And that despite that, they continue to have a strong sense of their work's worth, despite our ageist um, society um, that completely devalues it. Uh, not completely, but by and large, it does. It devalues it. Uh, and we're not hearing enough about those stories uh, in the news because they're not as hot topics. But um, I think it's important to point that out. So caryids deserve better. Um, they deserve better working conditions, not just now, but also for the future. And because the lives that they hold in their hands matter, the lives of our most frail uh, older um, adults, older uh, Canadians, older residents. Um, and because the lives that they hold in their hands matter also, so do the caryids lives. Um, we need to treat them better so that they can better care for our residents. So what is necessary for real lasting change? Well, the first thing is that we have to address minimum, minimum staffing ratios. Um, there's been all this resistance anytime we say we've got to address staffing ratios. Um, there's all sorts of excuses as to why it's too complicated to take on. Um, but I think we have to, and I think that COVID-19 is shedding this light on this crack that, that, um, that can no longer be ignored. And I'm, though I'm devastated as to what caused that, I, um, I'm grateful that we are finally there. And this minimum staffing ratios also has to include provisions that ensure staff do not work short when team members call in sick. When I um, did my PhD research and I shadowed care aides through the duration of their shifts, days, evenings, and nights in long-term care homes to learn about their work and who, they're, they're, who they are and, 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 and what they are asked to do every day, 40% of my observations, during 40% of those observations, the sh staff were working short. And when I asked um, the senior administrator uh, of the whole health authority that I was um, uh, conducting my research in, uh, he said that's about average. So 40% of shifts, staff who are already bare bones, let's, let's be honest, they work even, they, they work without a, a one staff member there. Too, so then um, their work gets spread even more thin and the quality of care that they want to provide gets more impacted and their moral distress goes up. Um, we also need to uh, have a sweeping wage review. The average is about $19 an hour and if we think about the complexity of care that they are, are or the complexity of care issues that they are having to, to meet and need and care for, um, that's just simply unacceptable. Um, in Dorval, or not in Quebec, um, a lot of the care aides who were working there, who are asylum seekers, um, they were making thirteen dollars an hour um, to do this work. Um, we also need to review the percentage of casual, casual and part-time positions that can be converted, and I should end, say in here back. To regular full-time positions with dent benefits because they used to have these and then they all got eroded. So um, we, we need to enable care aides to actually have a job uh, employment in one facility so that they are not having to work at multiple um, facilities. When I did my observations, uh, somewhere close to 45, between 45 and 60 percent of the care aides because to order to try to make ends meet, um, they would literally go from one shift, uh, maybe a, a six hour shift at one facility and race over to another facility to work at an eight hour shift in that facility. That's not an exaggeration. Some of them were working two back to back eight hour shifts because they knew they wouldn't have work for the next three days. So they were working literally uh, 16 hours in one day doing this very, um, physical and emotionally um, challenging uh, work. Now those are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And this is an important statement. Um, that's a that, 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 that's just humane. <laughs> that's just like getting at some of the foundational issues, but they're not sufficient in being able to actually produce the type of care that we um, should be able to hope for and expect in long-term care facilities. 
We also need to make sure that staff have adequate access to supplies and resources and that their staff's perceptions of discrepancies between written safety policies and daily procedures um, we need to um, are, are addressed. So in other words, uh, so many times I would go in and I would observe care plans and they would say things like uh, this resident due to uh, the complexity of the resident's needs, needs to have two care aids to do any transferring, any lifts of this resident. That would be um, written and an expectation. And yet, there was nothing in place to ensure that there were two care aids to be able to carry this out. And if regulations just simply um, stay with what's written, what's on the books, they won't get at the actual real issues. Um, Yes, it has to be written, but then there has to be processes in place and the ability for someone to go in and assess and hear from care staff, are you able to actually carry this policy out? Is this realistic given your staffing and your resources? And also, I believe very strongly with based on the research that I've done that if we're going to have uh, regulators and licensing officers and inspection officers, they come from all different, they have all different titles depending upon the region and province, um, go in and evaluate the quality of care. They also need to really look at um, asking the staff's perceptions regarding whether or not they feel their manager truly hears and responds to their concerns. That has to be addressed. Um, and because without that, then you have this this lack of organizational trust and this lack of this caring culture that actually is, is a requirement for good quality care to be provided. They also need to assess staff's perceptions about workplace conditions that create positive or, and supportive collaborative teams. What is This needs to be a priority because if care aides don't feel like they are cared about by their co-workers and by their managers, they are less able to provide excellent care to the residents that they are um, there to serve. And also whether or not um, the staff feel recognized and appreciated for a job well done. That may seem like that's like icing on the cake, but it's truly not. It's about valuing them. It's about empowering them. Um, could you go in and do the type of work we're asking them to do without ever feeling appreciated? We need to look at, like, um, for example, I have done several intervention studies uh, in long-term care facilities that have worked at looked at really changing care practices. And one of the policies by um, the organization that funded me, which is tied up in the provincial uh, regulations, uh, was that I couldn't use any of my funds for, for appreciation of staff. I wasn't allowed to. And when I interview managers, they um, it's one of the first budgets that, I mean, they, they're not allowed to use any of their budgets for staff appreciation. So managers who are, uh, who are continuing to try to do this, it's coming out of their own pocket to buy a cake, for instance. Um, why? why? <laughs> um, I, I think this needs to be addressed. Um, and then the other thing that I'd like to say is that we need to look to the carriers as the experts. And and my focus, and, then, and I'm not talking, about, I know I haven't spoken about LPNs, and I haven't talked about the registered nurses, and I haven't talked about the recreation therapists. All, this entire team is included in this. Um, they all need uh, to be viewed as the experts, and they are all experiencing moral distress. My focus is right now on care aids um, because I think that that's a very important starting point. But it's not to disregard what everyone else in who's working in long-term care is experiencing, not at all. Um, but I do think we need to start with care aids and then from there build from that foundation and go on um, up to the entire healthcare team that's there. I can say that when we empower care aids to develop and implement solutions to common workplace challenges, we galvanize an invaluable resource. And when galvanized, care aids can be an unstoppable force in improving care. And I, I have had the privilege of working with care, aid, uh, care aids and LPNs and RNs and recreation therapists and occupational therapists working in long-term care and dietary staff, oh my goodness, who work there when they have come together and said, we wanna make change, we want to, to no longer feel moral distress the outcomes that they've been able to produce in a very short period of time that have been sustainable uh, has been uh, inspiring and, and some of the, the most fulfilling work that I've done in my entire c 
uh, career. So in conclusion, oh yeah, almost perfectly 20 minutes. <laughs> um, across the world, uh, we're all yearning to return to the way things were. But in long-term care, that can't happen. We cannot yearn to return there. We need radical change. And I believe that a starting point is the development of quality reviews that emphasize a profoundly simple idea, that when we feel cared for, we are better able to care for others. So now I'm open to questions. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your talk. That was excellent. And we've got some questions already lined up. So I'll just okay. start right in with our first question. And our first question is by Knut Peterson. What are the differences between public and private LTC fact facilities, both in terms of quality and care and cost? Okay, so uh, once again, this it because long-term care is not um, administered or regulated or overseen federally, it depends upon the province. Um, the answer to that question depends upon the province and it also, um, it can even, so in Alberta, we have one health, health authority uh, in BC where most of my research is done, not all of it, most of my research, research, research has been done in Alberta. In BC there are five health authorities, so it depends upon the health authority. What I can say is that, um, and what's important to note, is that in my research, the quality of care in public versus private was um, whether or not they were publicly owned or privately owned was not the primary uh, indicator of the quality of care. It was the quality of the management's ability to respond to uh, the care staff and the relationship that the manager had. So for example, um, in one publicly owned and operated facility, there was um, a manager who, for a variety of reasons, felt in, felt disempowered to be able to really respond to the care staff's needs. And so was not there for the care staff in the way that the care staff needed them to be. In other words, there were there were, well, just to be blunt, there were decisions that were coming down and the manager was not able to be honest with the staff about those decisions. And these were about changing, replacing uh, uh, RNs, registered nurses, with LPNs. The erosion of that trust produced this really um, toxic work environment and that translated into toxic care. That was in a publicly run facility. Then there was another one that was a private, for-profit facility that had a manager who was out on the floor all the time, knew all of the care aides' names, knew what was happening in their lives, um, uh, talked to them all directly when they had a, a big snowstorm and a lot of staff couldn't make it in. They all had to work short staff. This manager found funds and bought pizza for them all, um, cared for them as people and there was outstanding care there. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it depends upon less about um, the overall who owns it and how is it funded and more about who's actually in, in the facility. Having said that, managers in for-profit facilities have a lot more pressure to meet the bottom line, have a lot more pressure to not meet the needs of their of their staff um, and so therein lies the rub and also I can say that in BC and I don't know whether or not this is the case in Alberta they also get different funding so they actually don't get as much funding per um, resident or per bed is what it's referred to as as the publicly run ones and so they have this uh, a, a much more pressure to um, meet fiscal restraint um, and that's a problem because it puts the managers in this horrible position of responding to the human need or responding to the pressure of needing to um, balance a budget or make money in the case of for-profit. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from Heather Oxman. 
Is there a certification process in place for care aides? Do care aides have a union to protect their interests? Yes, there is a certificate uh, um, uh, in place. They are not a regulated uh, profession though. Um, and whether or not there's a union again is dependent upon the facility that they work. So um, that also is, and that is also dependent, um, could be different in different um, provinces and even regions within the province. So um, yeah, it varies. And what both these questions are getting at is the problem of how different it can be um, in uh, each jurisdiction, if you will, and even each uh, long-term care facility. In all of the long-term care facilities that I worked in here in Canada, um, all of them were unionized and also for the care aides. Heather has a second question. Um, since long-term care is, provincially is a provincial responsibility, how can accountability for changing for the better be tracked nationally? Can national standards for staff conditions and practices be applied? Oh, what a big and important question. Um, they should be able to be, um, uh, we keep so much records and so many details of things that yes, we should be able to have the capacity to be able to uh, monitor that. And um, I think that it's going to require uh, some national standards, whether or not we'll be able to national. So if they set national standards that then each of the provinces would have to, to demonstrate that they had met um, is one um, possibility. I will say though, I my expertise is not in policy. Um, <laughs> mine is more of getting into the facilities and helping to make change from the grassroots. So I, I'm speaking outside of my comfort zone, full, full disclosure. Um, but there are a lot of people who have looked very closely at um, policy and policy changes in, in long-term care who are calling uh, for um, national standards. On those foundational issues, when those, those issues that I said are necessary but not sufficient, those necessary issues um, I think should be able to be addressed at that level. And I think they're going to have to be, and the reason I say that is because we do live in an ageist society. Um, you know, my first job here in Canada as a recreation therapist, I was working in what was then called an extended care unit that was attached to a regional hospital. And we just always were the last ones to be thought about as far as resource allocation. When you are, we, we value lives of children more than lives of older people. We need, we need to look at that. And because there is that innate ageist values, um, in our society that we do not address well enough. We have not acknowledged that. Um, we have to then have regulations that force us to, to ensure that those ageist values don't erode, continue to erode, because they already have um, the funding and resource allocation to caring for our older adults. Um, and I think that has to come from as high a level as you can just to, to create that, that foundation from then which you can improve quality of care. I hope that that answers that. Okay. Our next question comes from Bev Mundell. Would it help alleviate some of these issues if CEOs themselves were from healthcare backgrounds? Oh, um, Potentially yes and no. Um, and the reason that I say that is that, you know, you can, um, you can be excellent at one thing and not great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. So you could be an outstanding nurse, an outstanding nurse, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have leadership skills and, and skills in knowing how to engage in collaborative decision-making and skills in knowing how to build teams that trust. Those skills are essential. Um, 
it also there's a difference between leaders and managers. And I think that might be what you are maybe um, thinking about. So a lot of long-term care facilities, uh, especially in the United States, started hiring business managers because this is a business model that is about the bottom line financially. Um, and if, if we only have managers who are focused on that, we're not going to create care environments that produce the type of care that we can and should expect, and that we, unfortunately, um, the system gets in the way of staff being able to to provide. So, but having, um, I would say that if you had people who were experienced in healthcare who also had additional training in leadership skills and in cultivating leadership skills so that there was um, a, a team building um, so that they were, they knew how to empower uh, the care staff to be a part of the change that they want to see, um, then I think that that would be the best, um, the best model, if you will, uh, for producing that change. I think you can have someone who doesn't have an understanding of healthcare who is open enough to learn and be really responsive, like a responsive leader who has those skills in in listening in um, and really is about people focused um, that that may be able to do an exceptionally good job in that role. Our next question comes from um, Cheryl Bradley. Is there more job satisfaction among aides prov providing care of seniors staying in their own homes? Oh, home care aides. Um, Uh, that's not a, a group that I have done uh, specific research on. I can say that um, a lot of the feeling of being disempowered um, for, for home care aides from what I've read and also some of the, because I've collaborated with researchers who have um, done research with um, home care aides, that um, sometimes they can feel even less empowered and less connected because they they don't even have a team to call upon for when they need help necessarily. Um, uh, and I, my assumption is that that would also be dependent upon whether or not the home care, home health care aides are able to remain uh, consistently assigned, if you will, to the same um, individuals who they're providing care to. That relationship has to have an opportunity to be formed um, in order for there to be, my assumption is the, the, the type of job satisfaction that, that would enable um, excellent quality care. And right now I don't know how well the system ha is at, or uh, how good the system is at ensuring that, that, they, that those relationships are able to be formed, that they're supported, and that there's that continuity of caregivers. I know that there are some cases where that is not done at all, and I don't know how they would be able to have true uh, quality of um, or true true job satisfaction when they're simply going into different homes all the time. Our next question comes from uh, Laurie Schultz. Have you observed the lean method or just-in-time philosophy employed in long-term care? Uh, an example, how to shave off two minutes from a resident's bath. What are your thoughts? I haven't, none of the um, facilities that I have directly gone into um, have subscribed to that. Um, so I haven't been able to observe that uh, first firsthand. What I can say is that when care teams are brought together to look at how do we um, get rid of uh, I wouldn't say wasted time, but how can we how can we create more time uh, to do the things that matter most? And sometimes that's little things like being able to, for example, one of the studies that I did uh, where we were enhancing mealtime experiences, um, we know that when care staff are able to sit down um, during the mealtime, even if it's for a short period of time, um, 
and actually socially engage with the residents who they are uh, assisting with the meals, that we increase nutritional intake and we increase the quality of the mealtime experience for the residents significantly. Um, but being able to take that time to sit down means that they have to take something else away from their job because they're like mealtimes are these really tend to be this really frantic, um, uh, not very relaxed environment. And it's not conducive to good quality experience. I mean, we think about our meals, that's a big part of our life and our quality of life. And um, so what we did is we had the team figure out how to enable that. And my assumption is that it must be somewhat similar to that. And it is that it was changing who did what when in order to enable this to occur. And they all said that it was it had amazing um, positive outcomes. But it took the whole team to come together to figure out how to enable the care aides to sit down. So the administrator had to find the seats for them to be able to sit down. Dietary had to adjust their schedules so that um, the care aides weren't taking the, um, the plates back and forth. Someone else was doing that. Um, and so my assumption is that it, that if, if Lean is doing those types of things where they're actually engaging the um, staff to be a part of the solution to figure out how to change care so that it is more person-centered, so that it uh, decreases their experience of moral distress, then, then it's probably very effective. Our next question comes from uh, Beth Mendel. Do you think long-term care should be under federal jurisdiction and funding? Um, I don't even know what that would look like, and so it's hard for me to say yes or no to that. Um, I think that there needs, I, I worry about being too far removed. I'm worried about it be, being too far removed if that's the case. Um, and having, yeah. I think there needs to be more standardization of funding and more standardization of regulations that will produce the necessary um, foundation from which we can provide exceptional care. Uh, and I don't know, I think that, that, that there is somewhere in between it going from only provincial, which is hands off, uh, federal um, to all federal, which is hands-off provincial, and there must be something in between. Um, and I and I'm probably biased in this way because all of my research and everything that I've done has been about flattening a hierarchy. It's been about empowering the people who are on, who are at the bedside, who most know what needs to be done. And my fear is that. And, and why I got inspired to write my first ever op-ed was that what we'll do is we will not only not, not flatten the hierarchy, not flip it, but we're going to produce even more hierarchy. And, and the people who are going to be trying to make decisions on how to improve care are going to be even further removed from what's happening actually at the bedside. And that would be not good. Um, so I think there needs to be uh, a combination of having grout, grassroots, but also having the, like, in other words, whatever happens federally and whatever happens across the board needs to ensure a certain standard of staffing, of, of ensuring that the, the care aides are able to have a career in one home, um, not having to piecemeal together from multiple ones. Uh, needs to ensure things like we don't have four bed wards anymore, those types of things so that there's this foundation and then produces, I don't know, everyone's gardening right now. So I'll use this um, simile, you know, like we need to have at a, at a federal level, we need to have the, the flower box built and all the soil in there. But then we also need to have the opportunity for what that does is each uh, organization is able to say, all oh, right, what we know our unique, complex context um, environment within which we're trying to produce um, and provide excellent care, how do we grow the best? 
how do we what what plants need to be you know planted next to each other when we see something going wrong how do we make sure that there's sunlight there so that it's not just top down um I don't know if that answers that question, and I, <laughs> but I and I and I think we have to actually think outside the box. I think we can't just say, "All right, here's going to be 20 new um, uh, booklets of regulatory standards that are going to come from the top down, and um, and then expect things to change." And and I guess that's because, and this is important. Um, with every new regulatory standard that comes in, what it what I have seen the unintended consequence of that being is that it pulls managers and administrators and leaders away from the voice and needs and lived experience of the care staff who are there providing care and makes them all responsible for addressing these things that are going outside of their of their institution instead of bringing the team together and saying, what do you need from me in order to help you do your job? And and they're all, this is a story that I give, and I yeah, I have time. So I believe very strongly, and I, and I published a paper on this, that um, there's one, well, there's one manager who I had the privilege of, of, of observing and interviewing who had created the most outstanding care environment. And one of the things that I observed him do was there's a group of care aides who were in the hallway complaining about something. They were quite upset. And he just walked right up to them and said, all right, what's going on? And his first question he said to me was that he always asks of them uh, is, what do you need from me to help you do your job? And because the manager in this facility asks this question of all of his staff, uh, the staff who, who work uh, in that organization. So because that manager asks the director of nursing, what do you need from me to help you do your job? Then the director of nursing is able to ask the RNs, what do you need from me to help you do your job? And responds to them. And then the RNs are able to ask the licensed practical nurses, what do you need from me to help you do your job? And responds. And because the LPNs have someone asking them that, they're able to ask the care aides, what do you need from me to help you do your job? And because the care aides have someone asking that and responding to that, they are able to turn to the residents and say, what do you need from me to help you have a great bath? What do you need from me to help you feel uh, joy in your day to day? And that trickles down. When that is not there, when the manager, instead of focusing in to the organization and to the people within the organization, when instead their whole focus is on um, responding to outside. Okay. What what uh, when they are so focused on. Um, okay, the managers has has just left their administrators meeting, and they know they need to have um, all of their they need to have the 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 bath temperatures are are not being recorded enough. The we need to have a a new um, assessment of you know people aren't being um, the scales because uh, you know there's standards on um, taking weights of the residents every time they have their uh, their bath and that's not being done enough because regulatory standards say that they have to record that and they have to send them up then they come to the RN and they and or to the director of nursing and saying I need all of this documentation I need these stats because I need that from you that information from you to help me do my job so I can send that up the chain so then the RNs go to the LPNs and say you haven't done uh, I need all of the that's called the minimum data set resident assessment instrument. Um, I don't have all this documentation yet. I need to have that documentation so that I can file that up so that I can, so this is what I need from you to help me do my job. And then the LPNs go to the carriage. You haven't been documenting on the flow sheets. Um, I need all of that flow sheet documentation and you haven't been checking off this box. Um, and I need that from you to help me do my job. And then the carriage just get to the residents and say, just eat. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> because I need to be able to document for the LPN to, because I need you to help me do my job. And, and that's unfortunately one of the ways that increasing regulations can have this negative impact because everyone is responding to the needs of the person above them and outside of the organization instead of turning the light in and the energy and the heart and the and the focus in and that's what can't happen by sorry I get a little passionate about this <laughs> but that would be the worst possible outcome by increasing regulations um, is that we take the heart out of it again and we make everyone spend all this time to be in paper compliance and and check everything off and instead of really growing care um, we just grow stacks of paper sorry that was a long answer to one simple question <laughs> okay Kanata has this, Kanata Peterson has a question that's somewhat similar to an earlier question asked by Cheryl Bradley. Do you believe there is a renewed desire to improve home care by actually paying family members, for example, instead of people being placed in LTC homes? Yes, um, I do. And this is an important uh There is a tension and there is this uh, uh, need to, again, I believe that that, that 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 reason we have not actually gotten there is because, again, we don't value, because of the ageism and ageist beliefs and values that exist in our society. Um, we really need to fund both. And the reason we need to fund both is, and, and there's this whole, there's been this call of, we just need to get rid of long-term care facilities. Um, most people don't want to live in them. It's true. It, you know, I've worked in long-term care my entire career. And, and I can tell you that most um, older people that I know personally have, have said, and this is fairly extreme, and, and there's been research to prove this too, that they'd rather die than go into one of these homes. Well, if that's the truth, then there's a serious statement right there. Um, and so if that, acknowledging that, that and, and why there was this, prior to COVID-19, this huge emphasis on, on keeping people to be able to, ena enabling them to, to um, live into their oldest, their their, uh, their last years of their lives and die in their own home, um, we have to really increase funding there then. And we cannot, though, um, rob from Paul to pay Peter because there are also a lot of people who actually do so much better in long-term care homes. We don't talk about that enough because... Um, as, as a recreation therapist working in long-term care for 20 years and, and then researching long-term care for well over a decade, I can tell you that a lot of people who did not want to go into these homes do so much better once they are because it's not just the physical care. It's also that now they have table mates to eat with. They are no longer socially isolated. They have recreation therapists who are, who are enabling them to be part of singing in a choir, who are enabling them to, to engage in artwork, to be um, music makers again, who, who pair them up with um, uh, intergenerational programs where they bring in uh, uh, groups from kindergarten schools. Like, if you talk about some of the devastating outcomes that we haven't, we're, we're just on the tip of the iceberg yet on, on COVID-19 is the social isolation, the, the, the lack of pain. And we, we so elevated the medical need, the physical need, the physical, uh, our, our physical body needs that the social and emotional and spiritual needs got kind of just put on the back burner bringing people together in a long-term care home that's well run. I've seen um, people be admitted who, after being admitted, flourished. They came out of, they, they, they started trying new things. They actually experienced more joy. They, um, uh, they just, 
they just got so much better. And so we need to have both because there are some people who will not do well in their homes with a care aide coming in once a day. They will, they will become socially isolated and depressed and removed. Um, and so we need to do both. In how we compensate for family members in caring for, uh, we absolutely need to address that. Absolutely, we need to address that. But we can't depend upon that because there are many family members who taking on the role of being a caregiver to their family member, um, that makes an assumption that all family dynamics are positive, that there hasn't been trauma within that family relationship, that there hasn't been um, uh, a history of abuse, that there, that there had, like their families are, families are messy. That, uh, relationships are complex and so there absolutely may be some that that should be that can step into that role but my fear is that if we we cannot and we already depend far too much um, I think uh, on family members and 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 that's since I'm sensitive to that because a study that I'm uh, research team that I'm on right now is actually looking at trauma uh, family ties and aging well in Canada. And right now, Canada is dependent upon uh, family support, um, especially for people with dementia. Um, uh, but in, in, in many forms, uh, many disabling conditions as people age and does not acknowledge that when there is trauma, there can often be the disintegration of family. Um, and so we need, to, we need to be careful of that, that's all. Okay, we've got quite a few more questions here. And, oh, um, okay, I'll um, answer them quickly. I'll answer them more quickly. I assume we didn't have many, okay. <laughs> um, we've got actually, um, Beth Mandel just wants to thank you for addressing home care aids. They're even more valuable and have fewer unions. So that's just a thank you. Um, John Doan, uh, has a question. Is part of the failure to appreciate address physical and mental demands on LTC work a gendered issue, wherein work done largely historically by women is misperceived as light? Uh, uh, aging is a gendered issue, and caring for our elderly population is a gendered issue. Um, absolutely. Um, more uh, women. There's more women in long-term care facilities who are living them as living in them as residents. Uh, we live longer, um, and so and there is I, I believe it's somewhere towards oh, it could be higher than 80, 90 percent of the people who are providing care to those residents who are in long-term care are women. Um, and then you also have to add in the. Uh, racial issue um, with the vast majority being immigrants and if you've done if you've read any of the more recent uh, news stories coming out of Quebec one of the reasons why they're having such a hard time is because of their immigration policies um, and they were not able uh, to depend on um, immigrants to provide the work that let's be honest, a lot of Canadians don't want to do. Um, and so, and I, I, I think that we would be blind, willfully blind, if we didn't acknowledge that um, one of the reasons why we haven't played, there hasn't been more public pressure and we haven't had this cry out for making change is because the people who are providing this care in, are also... Um, not valued in the same way uh, that that others may other yeah it's it's a it's an important question our next question comes from Heather Oxman I've heard you say that in care aids works care aids work lives are improved that if care aids work work lives are improved rather um, and then in brackets convert to full-time positions, better salaries, tangible recognition of value, access to equipment, then residents' lives improve. 
Do you believe that private owners of LTCs will convert their properties and management to this kind of to this kind of management at the expense of their shareholders' return on investment? Um, and that's where uh, federal regulations need to come into play. I think they'd have to have that hand forced. Um, uh, would be my assumption. And I've never. I'm I'm not a business person. I'm an academic and a healthcare worker, so I don't have enough understanding of that. But um, but I do know that there are. Um, I would well. I don't know. I guess I would like to say I hope that there that anyone who goes into the industry of long term care goes into it for the right reasons. Um, but I couldn't imagine trying to balance the pressure of wanting to provide exceptional care and then also having to meet a bottom line. Like for case in point, I want to provide like, I, I don't know, the budgets that are coming down in academia in like the, 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 the university of Lethbridge, the budgets that we are being forced to uh, work under, I feel huge moral distress. Like, I mean, just to, to put this into perspective, right? Like, um, uh, I don't know how we, I want to, I want to, I want to be, I want to provide an outstanding learning environment for our students. And I have this con huge constraint now. We all have this huge constraint. And how do we do that? Um, and I will also say that the publicly funded facilities get handed those same constraints by their budgets that they're given. Um, and I think, I think it's just that we have to mandate that they are well resourced across the board regardless. And that, um, yeah, it doesn't work for them to be for profit because unless you mandate how little profit they're able to make and the, so that it can't be taken away from uh, given to, get, being given to the residents. Our next question comes from um, Knud Peterson, oftentimes interference from family members can be detrimental to the ability of staff to do a good job. And what are your thoughts in that regard? Ah, um, first of all, I completely understand, and my heart goes out to um, family members who who want who are there advocating with everything they have um, for the best possible care for the residents um, and. And uh, I think we need to do a much better job in long-term care of folding the family members into the care team. Um, there are ways to do that successfully, and there are ways that don't work at all. Um, and that is, again, a, a prime example of why we need to actually create a fertile soil and then have the people who are in the facilities work together in collaboration. Um, uh, those relationships need to be, we need to have the opportunity to heal some of the relationships and to support the relationships of the family members with, with the care teams. And that takes time. It takes resources. It takes the ability to actually have them be able to meet each other as people and work with each other as people and to be able to understand each other's perspectives in this um, care environment. Okay. Our next question comes from Leona Jacob. I appreciated your story regarding inside-outside expectations. How, where is the balance between regulation designed to protect residents with red tape reductions, which may well create a free-for-all? Yeah. Um, well, and that's why I, I think that there needs to be, regulations need to ensure that there, again, what's necessary is in place to produce quality care. Um, and then what I really want to see, I would love to be able to go and train regulated regulators or licensing officers who need to go physically into the long-term care facilities and do inspections, although I hate that term, um, but do quality reviews and work with the team and say, how are you guys addressing things when things go wrong? When there's an incident where there's been a negative outcome for a resident, how did the team address this? How did you get at that? What were the solutions? So that they actually become more like consultants than 
evaluators coming in to make sure everything is checkboxed. Um, uh, and I think that that's how we have to do that. We have to, we have to have really skilled um, uh, uh, in, in inspectors. But I, again, I'd rather them be consultants who are working with, but also have the ability to write up and hold accountable uh, to um, uh, quality of care standards. And I think those standards have to include collaborative decision making, uh, making sure that it's an environment that is not um, blame, that's not focused on blame, where people try to hide mistakes. Um, and instead, you know, they, here's an opportunity for us to produce change. How do we get at this? Because when you have inspectors, everyone tries to hide the errors instead of surfacing them saying, if it's a consultant, you surface them and say, how do we, how do we make this better? So I think it's the role of how we evaluate and, and implement any regulatory standards. I hope that answers that question. Okay. We're right on 12 o'clock, but we have two more questions. What is okay. your timeline? Are you okay I with... I stay on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, Laurie Schultz has a question. What are your thoughts on the quality of care using the Eden philosophy? Um, uh, I think it depends upon the institution. So I actually published a study um, where we looked at models of care and we looked at uh, outcomes and uh, the Eden philosophy actually scored one of the lowest on care staff empowerment. Um, and the reason is because it is, again, outside in. It's this prescription, it's this uh, way of being that if it is enacted in the long-term care facility as this is the way we're all going to do it and it's all top down, then it actually erodes staff's feeling of, of, um, of empowerment and engagement even, it can. If it's being done in a way of here's some ideas and, and we're all part of this, it's, it's how it's implemented that really matters. Um, uh, I think that there are some wonderful ideas around it, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a one size fits all, and I don't think any one model of care actually works. And I would what? include the butterfly model in that as well. Could you just explain what the Eden philosophy is for us? Oh sure. So the Eden philosophy um, basically um, is based on a premise that um, there are that loneliness is, uh, that there are, well, they, he calls them plagues, um, plagues in long-term care. And it really comes from the best of possible places. But he, he believed that, um, senior, that this needs to be a vibrant living environment and that we need to bring plants, animals, and children into and integrated into long-term care facilities. Um, and, and, I, and I think that you know, in some facilities that have plants, animals, and ch children, it's wonderful. It's just that um, one of the ways that I've seen it not implemented well is when there is one team and they become very specialized in it and they and they become empowered and then it they don't empower they disempower the rest of the team for needing to take that on. Um, also, uh, the last long-term care facility that I worked in before I went to my post uh, did my um, graduate work, uh, it was a, predominantly a farming community. And most of the residents did not want any animals inside. Like they're they're farmers. They're like dogs are out dog. They're outdoor, and cats are barn cats. And they didn't want that. And some seniors don't like children. They they find them overwhelming and noisy, and that's not their thing. And so that's the that's when when it gets implemented as a we're doing this across the board, and it's not individualized. And again, that's kind of like it needs to be context specific and, and they need to have the flexibility to take, take some aspects of it that really work and other aspects, let them go. I hope that answers. Okay, our last question today. Uh, the top-down regulations you described is about what management ministry needs to say they're doing their job slash mandate. Regulations based on residents need needs moving upwards perhaps is what what is really needed 
I agree. I, I, I think we need to, again, I guess going back to the experts on what what is needed, they're already there. They're in the facilities doing the work. And, you know, I'm Dr. Sienna Kaspar. I cannot go into any facility and say, well, I, I'll, t I'll admit this. When I was a, a consultant, I went into a facility and said, this is what the evidence said. Thou shalt do this. And I had them implemented. And it produced complete mayhem in this, in this one dementia care unit. And I learned volumes. It was horrible for me to watch that outcome because I, I sh what we need to do is find out from them. I mean, there's some basic things, again, um, quality of work life, just the foundational stuff. But, but then what's actually needed to make change, we need to find out from them what needs to be in those standards. We need to find out from them what's realistic. What, how do we not ensure that we are creating policies that they'll never be able to actually implement? like really implement as opposed to make it look good on the, on the paper. <laughs> um, so yeah. Yes. I think what I'm just saying is I agree. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us this morning and for your very informative talk. You know, P Peterson just says awesome presentation and answers many oh. thanks. Certainly many thanks Thank on behalf of SACPA and the people watching. Um, yeah. Do you want to, ha do you have any closing words for us or? Just that let's not lose this opportunity. Let's not let this opportunity go by. Uh, anyone who's listening, if, if you have a way that I can, or a, a suggestion on how I can continue to be a part of grabbing hold of this, of this, uh, opportunity. I mean, I've been working in long-term care and researching for in it for uh, oh man, it's now it's close to thirty years, and there's never felt like there's been an opportunity for real change to to take place, and it's now, and we have to we have to keep together to um, and galvanize ourselves in how to capitalize on this and not have it be something that as soon as we get a vaccine, it all gets put on the shelf, because then all of those lives that have been lost then they were for not and that's not acceptable that's not acceptable so um you know I, again I, policy is not my expertise but if i can be a part of making that change um and anyone like you've got my email address if you have suggestions um let's stick together and let's make it happen wonderful okay i will end the recording here thank you <laughs>